Turn to Psalm 106, kind of right in the middle of your copy of the Scriptures as we make our way through a few of the different psalms that kind of point to the coming of the Lord Jesus, the coming of the Son of God. Advent psalms is what I'm calling them. So Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan, and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed, and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. 
Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes, and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Father, as we have heard the history of your people, the sad, dismal, and dark history of your people. We recognize ourselves in it. We recognize all the ways we have followed in their steps. So Lord, as we approach your word now, as we sit underneath your teaching, oh, we pray for your help. We need to be saved. We need your mercy and your grace. So come, Holy Spirit, so work in our hearts that we would not follow in their ways but would run to the Savior that you have sent. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the summer of 2002, I needed a place to live for about six months uh, before I left for seminary. So my good friends Roger and Linda graciously invited me to stay in the guest room in their basement. They had, a, uh, they had two elementary-aged boys as well, so one of the blessings of that arrangement was it allowed me to observe a Christian family up close and personal, and particularly how my friend Roger related to his boys as a dad long before I had my own. Roger loved his boys, and he loved making them laugh. His boys especially loved it when, when Roger would tell them stories. He didn't do this every night, but uh, maybe just a couple times a week, most often on uh, the weekends, and he would just make up these stories using different characters that he had thought up. The characters would get themselves into some kind of trouble and have to find creative ways to work through their often humorous situations. There would often be surprising plot twists in the stories as well, but the stories would be ongoing. Uh, Roger would just kind of pick up where he left off the last time and keep going with the same characters, and each story was a part of this much larger story about the, these characters that was in Roger's head as he just kind of made up these stories as he went along. His boys, of course, would be enthralled with them, and I have to admit, frequently, I was too. And as we have been making our way through Advent, I've been telling a story to my youngest child 
each day. Like my friend Roger's stories, um, the stories that I've been telling are, are ongoing stories. They kind of pick up where they left off the day before. But unlike Roger's stories, the stories that I've been telling Betty are not just made up out of my own head. They are true stories. True stories from the scriptures, which are part of this much larger story that the Bible is telling. It's a story of Advent, which did not just begin when an angel came to visit a young engaged girl named Mary in Nazareth. Advent is actually a part of a much larger story, the grand story of God and his people. It's a big part of the story of redemption that's being told to us throughout the Bible. In Psalm 106, the psalmist alludes to this story. And he's telling a story in the psalm as well, a dismal story of the unfaithfulness of God's people and the amazing works of salvation and persevering love and faithfulness of God toward his people. But the psalmist clearly knows that the story of God's people is not over yet. He knows there is more yet to come. But he also knows that if God's people and his promises are going to survive, that God will have to do something amazing. The story that the, the, the psalmist tells in Psalm 106 was not over after he wrote it. It was, it was part of a much larger story that God was writing. And in fact, the story includes us here today. And the story is still ongoing and is assured of having a very good ending because of the hero of the story. And so our main theme from Psalm 106 is that the history, or you could say the story of God's people, clearly illustrates his enduring faithfulness and our desperate need for the promised Savior. The history of God's people clearly illustrates his enduring faithfulness and our desperate need for the promised Savior. As you uh, just found out, Psalm 106 is a longer psalm, uh, almost 50 verses, but actually has a fairly simple structure to it. it. It begins and ends with praises and prayers, and then the body of the psalm tells the story of God's people from the exodus from Egypt up until uh, their exile. Uh, there are too many verses for us to look at each one closely this morning, so we will definitely you know, take a flyover approach uh, of this psalm, but I think we'll still be able to focus on the main message uh, here. So number one, uh, verses one through six, see, we see the professing faith in the continuing story of God's people. Professing faith in the continuing story of God's people. So the psalm begins with a very familiar refrain in Psalm 1, or in, in verse 1, praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So Psalm 106 begins with the exact same declaration that just concluded the previous psalm, Psalm 105. There it says, praise the Lord, or it might say hallelujah in your transla translation. Hallelujah is Praise Yah, praise Yahweh. When we, when we see the Lord in all caps in our, in our translations, it's pointing to the, the name of God, Yahweh. So praise the Lord, hallelujah. If you take a peek 
at the end of the psalm in verse 48, you will see that it ends the same way it begins. There it is again. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So the hallelujahs are bookends of this psalm where they form what's what's called an inclusio, where the top and the tail of the scripture passage reflect each other like a mirror. This lets us know the primary purpose of this psalm. It is a psalm declaring God's greatness, his glory, his goodness. It's praising God. As we read through it and discover that it also outlines the failures and unfaithfulness of God's people, well, then we understand more just why the psalmist is praising and giving thanks to the Lord. It's because the Lord's faithfulness and steadfast love shine even brighter against the background of his covenant people's faithlessness. By the end of the psalm, we're going to be convinced of just how much the Lord is worthy of our praise and thanksgiving and how gracious and merciful he is towards his sinful people. One thing we clearly see that I think is instructive for us is that while the psalmist is going to tell this depressing story of the faithlessness of God's people, he's not doing it as someone who is self-righteously looking down on them. Rather, he includes himself among them. He confesses to be one of them, one who is just as in need of God's grace and mercy as they were. Look there at verses 2 and 3 where he says, Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. So here the psalmist is, is humbly referring to his inadequacy and his unworthiness to do what he is about to do. It's like he's saying, who am I that I should be given this honorable task to proclaim the great works of the Lord and show how praiseworthy he is? I mean, I am certainly not like someone who would be considered just and righteous in all my ways. I am just as in need of being saved as the people of Israel here. And that is the right tone and attitude that we ought to have whenever we talk about the sins and failures of God's people. Look at verse 3 again. Can any of us honestly and faithfully profess to be worthy of this blessing? Blessed are they who observe justice and who do righteousness at all times. I know I am certainly not worthy to stand before you and do what the psalmist does in this psalm. Proclaim the word of the Lord. We are not worthy to stand before God and offer him praise, and yet, yet we do. We did so this morning. Our lives are all a testimony of God's gracious, saving work, as in the case for all of God's people. I mean, listen to the psalmist again, identify himself with those that he's going to be writing about in this psalm. Look at verse 6. He says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. The psalmist is speaking for himself and for all the people of God in this verse. We ought to take a similar posture as we read through and consider the sins and unbelief of God's people outlined here in this psalm when we hear about the failings of Christians or of other churches. 
we can never point our fingers and look down upon them as if we're morally superior to them, as if we would never fail in a similar way if we had been in their shoes. But what is the psalmist looking to that gives him hope here? As he considers the dismal history of his people, what does he point God's people to in this psalm so they may have hope amidst the darkness of their exile? Verses 4 and 5 show us that the psalmist points them to the Lord and reminds them that this is not the end of the story. That God is, has been, and will continue to work out his story of redemption through his people. He says, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. That I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Did you notice there the, the future-looking and the confident statements of when? When you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. He knows that the story isn't over yet. He knows that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and then with King David that through their people, the children of Abraham, that one man would come who would be a son of David, and through him would come a blessing for all the families of the earth. That his kingdom would never come to an end. He knew that that prosperity and salvation was coming for God's elect. Their story wasn't over yet. They were still in the middle of it. But it would be a very good ending. He was confident that the story would turn out well because of the faithfulness of the one who had already written the story. The one who had made the promises. Secondly, we're going to see a story of enduring mercy amid the darkness of unfaithfulness. This is the, the main section of the psalm, verses 7 through 46. So we already read through this part of the story. It begins after God had mercifully delivered Israel out of uh, the bondage of slavery in Egypt. I think it would be helpful for us to uh, take a look back at that story at the beginning of the book of Exodus to remind ourselves of it, but also to help us to see uh, the similar condition that the people will be in at the end of the psalm. So we learn in, in chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus that the children of Israel were greatly increasing in number and that the Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, grew afraid of them. Therefore, he enslaved them while he still could in order to control them. But they were under the blessing of God. So they continued to increase. And they increased in number and they increased in strength. So Pharaoh commanded that when the Hebrew women would give birth to male children, he commanded those who were helping them to give birth that, that they would just put those male sons to death. Just you know, act like something happened and, oh, sorry, your son died during childbirth. But, of course, that backfired on them when they refused to do that. Well, he then commanded that any male child that was born to the Israelites must then be cast into the Nile River, again, to kill them and to try to control the population. We can't imagine the devastation and sorrow that this must have brought upon the people of Israel. 
And we then hear later in chapter 2 of Israelite slaves getting beaten by their Egyptian captors. And then finally, at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus, Moses provides us with a summary of their condition and how they were responding to it. Verses 23 through 25 of Exodus chapter 2 says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. They were suffering, and they knew they desperately needed a Savior. So they prayed. They groaned. They cried out to the Lord to save them, to deliver them. And the Lord heard. He remembered his covenant. He saw their suffering. And it says, God knew. He knew what they were going through. And he knew what he was going to do to save them. And the time had finally come. So that's in the background as we approach verse 7 of Psalm 106. The psalmist knows we are all well aware that the Lord here is a God who saves. He is their redeemer. He is their deliverer. And he delivered Israel out of the bondage and oppression of Egypt. So the psalmist traces through Israel's history from the Exodus to the deliverance through the Red Sea to their years in the wilderness wanderings, to finally entering the promised land, uh, to then a few verses summarizing their history under the kings to their exile. Psalm 106 reminds me of one of my favorite children's Bible storybooks uh, that came out when my uh, oldest uh, child, Esther, was probably uh, two or three years old. It's called the Big Picture Story Bible, so my family's been reading this Bible um, all throughout uh, the years here. It's a, it's a very big book. It's illustrated with these big pictures, which are colorful and well done, and it tells the story of God's people in much the same way as the psalmist does here, almost from a heavenly perspective. For many of the illustrations, it's almost as if you're looking down from the sky on the people. And there are more than a few striking pictures of God's people actually looking up and shaking their fists at God while they are in the wilderness and were grumbling and wishing they were back in Egypt or were angry with God over the judgments that he was sending their way because of their idolatry and their rebellion. And there are even several pictures in the Bible storybook uh, from this heavenly view of God's people bowing themselves down to idols, offering sacrifices to pagan gods. It's definitely a much more biblical, uh, bi- biblically accurate children's Bible storybook than most that are out there, for it's honest about the condition of God's people. And what the psalmist wants us to know about God's people, which if you remember from verse 6, that he is including himself in, is that they are unworthy, they are undeserving, and in many cases they're outright contemptible. We're given specific examples of the people's sin, their idolatry, their unfaithfulness, and their ungratefulness. Many of their sins we can identify with ourselves. Sins of jealousy are here. Sins of forgetting all the good things that the Lord has done for us. Being ungrateful to him. 
sins of unbelief, not trusting God's promises, and disobeying his instructions, sins of compromising with the world and their worldly way of living, which, as one writer put it, makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. It's clear from the psalmist's indictments that they deserved the judgments that the Lord brought upon them for their rebellion. And yet, the Lord still had mercy. He didn't completely destroy them as they deserved. He shows mercy over and over again throughout their history. And then we get to verses 34 through 39, which seems to me to be an overview of the people's unfaithfulness from the time that they entered the promised land through the very dark time of the judges, and then concluding with the Lord's judgment on them in the exile to Babylon. So I want to focus a little more attention on these verses for how it relates to our own day and to our own nation's guilt before the Lord and our great need for salvation. And it's also a clear warning to us in the church today to avoid compromise with our wicked, godless culture. Here we go, verses 34 through 39. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them, or you could say became a trap to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, that is, the demons who are behind these idols, calling forth to to the people who are enslaved by them, to do their bidding, which is to destroy God's people. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Whenever um, God's people who were supposed to be committed to him by covenant, by by a covenant marriage, went after foreign gods and idols. It's like they were prostituting themselves. They were committing spiritual adultery with these idols. That's what is being referred to here in verse 39. In our Sunday school class on the book of Kings, we are learning about how God's people were led into idolatry by their shepherds, by their, by their leaders, by their kings. Some kings like Ahaz and Manasseh of Judah went so far as to offer their own sons as sacrifices for the idols and the demons who stood behind them. Psalm 106 shows us it wasn't just these two kings that were doing it, but many of the people as well. They followed the ways of the Canaanites who were still their neighbors. God's people were called by God to make his name great among the nations, to influence them toward righteousness, but instead what happened was they were influenced by their pagan neighbors. Many... uh, are lamenting in our own day of the secularization of the church, that we are looking far more like the world in our beliefs and practices than they are like us. And here this psalmist is lamenting the canonization of the people of God, how God's people were influenced by their beliefs and their religious practices and how they turned away from the Lord. They were tempted to follow the idols of Baal and Ashura and Molech Pagan gods that promised fertility for themselves and their animals, good yields for their crops and protection from the gods of their enemy nations. So in other words, they were after sex, prosperity, and peace. 
they were not that much different than the idols that our own society is tempted to follow, which leads to sacrificing children through abortion or simply being very careful not to have children since they would get in the way of our pursuit of sex, prosperity, and peace. What the psalmist is showing us here is that the pursuit of those idols will ultimately lead to peace and prosperity, but will, or won't, won't ultimately lead to peace and prosperity, but will rather lead to destruction and death as we will come under the wrath of God. But maybe as you look back, as you look back on your own story, maybe your story is, is dark as well. You have a history of sin and unfaithfulness. And even when it seemed like you were heading in the, in the right direction, you instead took a turn toward the darkness and, and, you, and you fell again into that sin that enslaved you. Well, you need to hear that even this sad, dark history does not end without hope. Look there at verses 44 through 46. It says, Nevertheless, he, that is the Lord, looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. And as we saw last week in Psalm 2, the Lord is both the judge and he's the Savior. There is no refuge from him, only in him. And he made a promise to his people, and he would fulfill his promise whenever his people cried out to him in humble repentance and expressed that their only hope was in him, in the Lord, well, that he would respond with mercy and salvation. And that's what we see in the last two verses here of this psalm, verses 47 and 48, crying out for salvation and the very good ending to the story. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. As we come to the end of the dark and depressing story of the people of God, we are not left without hope. For at this time in the story, they were in a very similar place to when they were under the demonic oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt. Back then, they were enslaved by a fearful and wicked king who could put chains on their hands and their feet and take away the ones that they loved the most. And here in this part of the story, God had delivered them from Egypt. He had provided them with a home. He had fulfilled every promise that he'd made to them about the land, but they were still enslaved. They were suffering a kind of oppression that they could not overcome in and of themselves. God's people were groaning once again. They were in desperate need of the Lord to come and save them from their sins. They were in bondage because of their sins. But here in verses 47 and 48, here we see clear evidence that even in the Old Testament times, God's people knew their real struggle. They knew that being ruled by foreign kings and empires was not their greatest problem. They knew there was something more that had to be done for them than just to be delivered from their enemies. They knew that there was something more, something deeper, something within each of them that enslaved them. They knew it was their sin. 
They knew it was their disobedience. They knew it was their hard and stubborn hearts. They knew it was their propensity to turn away from the one who loved them, from the one who gave them life and promised to bless them if they would trust in him. They knew something was keeping them from doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with their God. They, they needed to be saved from their sin. They desperately needed their hearts to be transformed. They needed a Savior. At the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, the Apostle picks up the story of God's people. He begins with Abraham and traces the line of Abraham's descendants through Jacob, through Judah, to King David, and through David's descendants all the way to a man named Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called Christ or Messiah. Matthew then tells the story of how God revealed to Joseph how and why he would be Jesus' adoptive father. It was because the child that his betrothed wife would give birth to was sent from God. He was from heaven. And he was conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph was to give him a specific name. He was to call him Jesus or Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Because the specific mission that Jesus would have to be, uh, would, would, would have would be to save his people from their sins. He would be the answer to the prayer of God's people from Psalm 106. He would be the Savior that they needed. And he is the Savior that you and I and everyone else in our world needs as well. The story of God's people led to the birth of Jesus, the Savior. He accomplished the mission for which God sent him into the world to do. He lived the per perfectly righteous life that God's people had always failed to live. He then laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of God's chosen people. He died for sinners and he was buried, but even that wasn't the end of the story. For God then rose him up from the grave and before he ascended into heaven to take his place on the throne, he sent out his apostles to go and make disciples of people from all nations. That's what verse 47 here is also referring to. The story is not over yet. This gathering of the nations is still ongoing. So the story continues on. My question for you is, are you a part of the story? Have you called out to the Lord to save you from your sins? Have you experienced the transformation of your heart through putting your faith in the Lord Jesus? Will you be among the number from the nations who will be forever blessed through their faith in Jesus Christ? Are you able today to glory in the praise of the Lord with all his people because he has become your salvation. Are you able to say, Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord.